Welcome to Working in the Weeds. I'm Christine Krebs, the Communications Manager out at the UF IFAS Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. And joining me today for this episode is Director Dr. Jason Farrell, the usual co-host. Hey, Christine. Hey, I'm uh, usually, as always, uh, super excited to have these conversations. But this study in particular, uh, when I first started my job here at CAPE, I was kind of looking through the previous research and kind of getting familiar with the work that uh, happens out here at the center. And this one stood out to me in particular because it involved stakeholder participation from start to finish. And I thought that was so cool. It, you know, the people that used the water body that these researchers conducted this study with were involved in the process. They were concerned about what was going on. They were curious. They had questions. And so you de- you as a research group developed the questions with them, went out and collected the data with them, and then analyzed it and shared it with them, and then made a difference on what goes on in that lake in the future because of this study. So I think it's really cool that we're taking the time to talk about this study today. This one is titled, Legacy Herbicides in Lake Sediments Are Not Preventing the Growth of Submerged Aquatic Plants in Lake Estapoga. And this involved you, Mark Hoyer, who's um, one of the directors of uh, Florida Lake Watch, Dr. Haller, and Dean Jones. So, yeah, let's talk about it today. This is a great example of when science and participants that live on the lake that are the most passionate about their lake come together and really start trying to help each other get to a mutually beneficial solution. Things were going with that lake in a way that they weren't happy They brought in the researchers, and together we started trying to find answers for them. So we talk about these stakeholders. Who were they? Was it just anyone that lived in Florida? Was it anyone that used the lake? Or was it kind of like, I know some lakes have these like advisory or lake groups or like homeowner association versions of of a lake group. What what was this group? So this was the Lake Istapoga Advisory Committee. They were in the process of doing their first lake management plan. And they were trying to figure out what do they want their lake to be? What do they want it to look like? How do they want things to be considered for that for the management of that water? But they had a big issue with there wasn't enough submersed aquatic vegetation in their lake. So all of a sudden, they're together, they're planning, and then research came out of those discussions. So when you say submersed aquatic vegetation, that's the those plants under the water, and it was native and invasive, there just wasn't really any there? Or were they worried about too much invasive taking away from the native? Yeah, so let's back up a little bit with this conversation. So we're talking about Lake Istapoga. Uh, it's 27,000 roughly acres down in South Florida. It's a really shallow lake, about four feet deep very nutrient-rich, and it has historically been a mammoth fishery. When you talk about the best fishing lakes in Florida, there is a small group of lakes you always talk about. It's Okeechobee, it's Kissimmee, it's Toho, it's Orange, and it's Istapoga. It is one of those that everybody talks about because it has just been a champion fishery for decades. But what happened is in 2017, Hurricane Irma, came right up the southern part of the state, right over the entire peninsula. And anytime you have a huge Category 4 hurricane move right over the top of a shallow lake, there's going to be a lot of disruption. It churns the water up. It gets very turbid and dark. So a lot of those plants that are living down in the water will have a hard time surviving because the water is just stirred up. It looks like chocolate milk. But also, all of those submerged plants, they'll get ripped out with the wave action. They were talking about like six-foot waves on Lake Istapoga, and it's only a four-foot deep lake. So these waves were just piling across, and it ripped up a lot of the vegetation. We know that happens. It's not rare. 
happens all the time. The issue, though, was that all of that hydrilla got ripped out, but it didn't come back. So then the stakeholders were saying, what happened? What is going on with this lake? Why do we not have any plants in this lake? And that's when the researchers came together to try to help them. Okay, so the hurricane was in 2017. When did the study start happening? So they started talking to us in 2018. And then in February of 2019 is when we mobilized and started working on this with them. And I feel like the response to that is also pretty interesting, right? For stakeholder or citizen science research to not only respond to something happening in real time and then in, in the short time frame of two years for the research to then start being conducted is pretty impressive too. Well, a lot of times people want things done and they don't understand that research can take a long time to mobilize. But when you have a stakeholder group that is all in unison and saying, this is what we want, and they're being very reasonable. Meanwhile, they're working with a lake management plan committee. Meanwhile, FWC and others are all at the table. When our phone rings and everyone is in unison wanting the same things, we, you can really start moving the needle a whole lot faster. So you mentioned that the stakeholders were concerned, not particularly because a hurricane occurred or went over the water body, but because the plants were not coming back afterwards. Why were they concerned? What was kind of happening in that lake? What's the history of that lake? Well, historically, Istapoga being very nutrient-rich and shallow, it has supported a lot of submersed plants, hydrilla in particular. There was a time in the 90s, early 2000s, there was over 20,000 acres of hydrilla in that 27,000 acre lake. Uh, I have been told that you could sit in a boat and as far as you could see in every direction was nothing but hydrilla, even going to the horizon line. So a lake that has historically had that much and then it goes to zero, people started becoming concerned. And the first thing that their mind went to is, we know that there's been a lot of hydrilla treatment. A lot of herbicides over the years have been used in Lake Istapoga to help manage invasive plants. Their concern was there has been so much herbicide put in this water that it is now in the sediment and it is living there. And as that sediment got churned up, this herbicide has been, been released and the sediment is now toxic, and it will not allow plants to grow. So they were thinking that there was a legacy of these herbicides that were hanging around, not breaking down, preventing the hydrilla and other plants from coming back after Hurricane Irma. So a nod to the title of the journal article and what you just stated, legacy herbicides are, are the this sort of concept of the herbicide is being built up in the environment, and it's that legacy of the treatment is now impacting the present and maybe even the future. Okay, so this that sort of concept was being explored and that was the concern of the stakeholders. And so you as the researchers said, okay, let's answer that question. Absolutely. That is not where my mind first went as a researcher because the EPA, before they register any pesticide, they have to do work and see what is this environmental profile? What does the persistence look like? in aquatic environments, in upland environments, all sorts of places that that pesticide could be. So I felt sure that the herbicide wasn't there. But with those stakeholders passionately wanting to know answers, it's like, you know what, this is a very researchable question. And this is something we can work together on. And anytime a researcher starts saying, oh, we don't need to do the work, we already know that, that's when you start finding yourself in trouble. 
as a researcher. You have to stay curious and you have to go back and check other people's data. So this is what we wanted to do. We said, let's go out, let's do some sampling, let's take it to the lab and let's make for sure what is going on in these sediments. And so to me, that's music to my ears because I, I study social science, right? And things that we kind of preach over and over again in social science is that there needs to be this dialogue in science and research. There needs to be back and forth with the people that research the information and who that information serves. And it sounds like even though the hypothesis seemed a little bit questionable or, oh, we kind of already know that answer, it's like, you know what, let's take the time and find out and confirm what we already know or find out something new. And we wanted to build trust. So... You can just breeze in there as a researcher and say, hey, I'm here from the government. Trust me, I know what's best. Or you can say, no, I'm hearing your concerns and let's go collect the data. Let's find out for sure what's going on. So with that, speaking of this data and the concern that they had, what if you could give us a brief overview, because we'll probably spend some more time talking about the details afterwards. But what did this study look like from start to finish? So we sat down with the advisory committee for Lake Istapoga and we said, all right, the question is, why are the plants not growing back? So we, we said there's really three ways to go about answering this question. Number one, let's go out and get some sediment. And we will package it up and we'll ship it to a lab and we'll actually have them analyze that sediment for herbicides. And we gave them a big list. Every herbicide that had ever been used in Lake Istapoga over the past decade, we're going to look and see if it's there. The second thing was we also need to know, is this sediment worthy of growing plants? Is it? Is there something wrong? Is there something else going on in this sediment? So we took even more samples, brought it back to the lab, dried them out, and planted plants in them to see, will anything grow in it? And third, we said, hydrilla, we know it got ripped out by that hurricane, but it doesn't rip out the tubers. The tubers are those little propagules or those little we talked about this in a hydrilla deep dive episode. It's it's kind of a tuber. They it's say kind tuber because it's like a potato, but it's not. It's just a, a space of energy where the plant can use to grow further. It's a little reproductive structure, but the, all of those stay in the soil even after the plants are ripped out. So there can be tens of thousands of tubers per square foot. I mean, tons of these things, particularly with as long as hydrilla has been in Istapoga. So we said, if it isn't coming back, that means there's something going on with the tubers. Are they sprouting and not coming up? Are they not there? What is going on? So that was a third thing was do a bunch of sampling and start counting tubers and trying to find out how many are there? Are they still alive? What's going on with the tuber bank? All right. So the data to me sounds like if I were to summarize it is you took sediment samples and you, number one, tested those sediment samples for the herbicides that have been used historically. And you know the history of the herbicide use because FWC keeps track of those. They keep the receipts, so to, so to speak. Then, two, you used that sediment. You said, OK, we're going to take it and try to grow something other than a submerged aquatic vegetation and see what happens. And then third, because there used to be so much hydrilla, there has to be evidence of them still present. And so let's go find some tubers. Absolutely. So that was the three-pronged approach for the research. But then the big question was, where do you get your sediment from? Well, it was very easy for us to go out and just say, hey, we want to take sediments from here, here, here. But when you've got people who have lived on that lake for decades, 
Who better to ask, where has the hydrilla historically been? So that's what we asked them. And we said, you need to tell us where is it usually? Where has it never been? And let's go get a lot of different samples from a lot of different places. And we said, we want you guys to go with us while we collect it. We want you to see how we're doing this and that we're not just out trying to pull a fast one and getting all a bunch of sediment from one place that is not prime hydrilla well, habitat. Like you said, building trust. Yes. And you enjoy this work. So let's go do it together because you like being on the lake. I like being on the lake. And we both want to know the answer. So we put up a big map of Lake Istapoga and we said, all right, everybody, go tell us where we need to sample. And very quickly, we ended up with 36 little tags on the on the lakes. And we're like, whoa, 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 time, time out. That is way too many. Uh, that's going to cost $100,000 to take that many samples and get them analyzed. So we started pulling them off and we got down to nine. So we went out to nine specific places that they had tagged. We took them with us. We sampled. We took them back, to, took all that sediment back to the lab. That's cool that you had that map and that participation from them to kind of pick the sites. And so you went out onto the boat. Let's take a day or let's take a moment to kind of paint the picture of what that looked like. So did the whole advisory council go on one boat or did you all kind of divide and conquer and then come together and go, OK, we got the samples. We'll get back to you when the lab results um, return back to us. Yeah. So not everyone on the committee went. They were just they have day jobs, too, a lot of times. But a few of them did. And they went out as we were sampling. And we did it a couple of different ways. So we had these little devices that you drop it down in the water. And as soon as it hits the bottom, these little doors close and it traps the sediment. We wanted to use that little machine. It's called a Ponar dredge. We wanted to use that because hydrilla is going to germinate. Those tubers are going to germinate in the top couple of inches. So we didn't want to go out and take a foot deep sediment sample because that you've now got sediment you know that no hydrilla tubers are going to be in they're not going to germinate from that deep so we wanted that really shallow surface sediment and we dropped it and pulled it in and dropped it and pulled it in of several hundred times that day and that is how we got all of our sediment from each of our nine stations that we were looking at so the sediment samples were collected and they were tested and used to grow, and then also looked for presence of tubers at all. What were the results of the study? As we collected that sediment, the portions that were going to a lab for analysis, we packed them in ice, kept them cold, and we overnighted them to a lab, a private laboratory in Georgia. They analyzed for about eight or ten different herbicides, and just a few days later, they sent us the report back, and it came back as undetectable for every herbicide that they analyzed for. So again, I was expecting that because the registration process says these herbicides have to break down in the environment. But the reason we wanted to do the lab analysis and determine if that sediment will grow plants is the best lab equipment in the world can only detect at some level. They can't always go to zero. It can go really, really super low but plants are often better at detecting really low levels of herbicide than a $200,000 instrument in a lab. So the lab says there's nothing there that it can detect. So now we go to the greenhouse with that exact same sediment. And you say plants, but use tomato plants. Why did you all use tomato plants? So tomato plants are 
historically very sensitive to a lot of different herbicides. And you can grow, you can buy high quality seed that are going to germinate and grow very consistently. So you want, since I'm measuring how big the plant gets after it grows, I need something that is at least going to start off and be somewhat consistent. So any type of crop plant is very good. And tomato, little bitty seed, not a tremendous amount of energy in that seed. So it has to start getting the nutrients from the soil immediately. And if there's herbicides in there, it's going to shut that process down very quickly. And it's very obvious and evident. So that's called a bioassay. So we're using a plant to now look if there's any herbicide. So the instrument looked, the instrument couldn't see it. Now I'm using a plant to look in that sediment and tell me if there's any herbicide there. And what we found was the tomatoes grew fantastic. So we compared it to just regular potting mix that you would buy like a garden soil. The Lake Istapoga sediments were extremely nutrient rich. We were growing plants just as well in that lake sediment as we were in bag topsoil that we bought from a big box store. So the plants developed very quickly. They were robust. They were consistent. So now it's also telling us that the tomato plant can't see any herbicide in there. But the issue with this is when you have a lake management group and they're saying, tell us why hydrilla doesn't grow and you come back and show them a bunch of tomato plant data, they will shake their head and say, well, yeah, but nobody cares about tomatoes. Will it support hydrilla? So we peeled off another section of sediment. We grew those in tanks with hydrilla tubers, and every one of them immediately sprouted and grew very healthy, very robust hydrilla. So you used a common experiment plant like tomato that is known to be sensitive and reliable in the greenhouse, confirmed or at least showed what the results were to the stakeholders and said, you know what, we'll also still try it with the plant that you're particularly curious about. So we kind of have this double whammy, so to speak. Okay. And then third, what happened with the tubers? Did you guys find any tubers? So we went out and sampled and sampled and sampled. Now we didn't do all nine locations because tuber sampling, you have this big piece of pipe on a big pole and you put it down in the sediment and it suctions into the sediment. And then you just have to use all of your strength and pull that and break that suction and bring a big piece of sediment up to the boat. And then we would rinse them on the boat and look for the tubers. It is so labor intensive. We said, we're only going to look at three different spots, but we're going to pick the three spots where the stakeholders said the most hydrilla has historically grown. So we would start in one area and we would sample and then we would move and move and move and move. It's called a transect. So we would do this straight line and take samples in a straight line over several hundred feet and then move to another site and do it again, move to another site and do it again. So we were expecting to find thousands of tubers in this process. We did not find a single tuber in a single sediment core that entire day. So the lab says they, they don't see herbicide there. Tomato plants say they don't see herbicide there. Hydrilla is happy to grow in the sediment. The reason that the hydrilla is not growing in Lake Istapoga is simply because all the tubers disappeared. Wow. And 
So the first two questions of the research study were kind of uh, somewhat familiar to you. You kind of were expecting the results that you ended up seeing. But this third one, did it end up surprising you and the stakeholders, the researchers and the citizens that were a part of the study? We just kept sampling and we well, pull another one. There's got to be some in the next. There's got to be some. Then I start thinking to myself, what am I missing? I'm, I'm We're doing the sampling wrong. Or maybe I'm just not seeing them as we're cleaning these samples and everybody on the boat just kept saying no they are there's just none here so i was so shocked i was second guessing the methods that we were using there just simply wasn't any tubers in that sediment it it was it was crazy yeah it's kind of cool to know that there was that moment for both of both sides the scientists and the citizens during this study too that you both were just like wow we're both learning something really new right now and we're both surprised um so i guess that kind of brings us to what does this all mean what does this study mean to aquatic plant management lake management and also i guess maybe science in general this sort of participation that was involved well the really amazing part is since we continued to use our partners on Lake Estepoga through the entire scenario, and they were involved. Every time we would get a piece of data, we would present it to them. So not all the data came in at the same time. So we did regular check-ins. All right, this part's finished. This is what we learned. The next part is finished. This is what we learned. So we kept going through the process, and we got to the end and said, guys, I don't know why there are no tubers here. Uh, So We can't figure that part out, but we have identified that it will grow hydrilla. There's just none here right now. And the amazing thing was, is they believed us. They believed the process. They believed how we did the data. They were part of it from the very beginning. And then they go back in to their lake management plan meetings. Well, they're setting up how much vegetation they want here. What is acceptable? What is desirable? And it was sort of funny at one of the meetings, someone came in late that hadn't been participating in this process for the last two or three years. They were brand new to the process. And the first thing they said is, there's too many herbicides that have been used in this lake, and that's why there's no hydrilla. And I guess they didn't know that we had just collected all of these data. And before anybody from the University of Florida could speak, one of the members of the advisory council said, you know what, we've collected all of that data. We have dismissed that. It is something else. Let's move on. Wow. So they were defending the science. They were defending the process. And we ended up with a lot of good friends out of this. That's really cool. Yeah, it, it's amazing how that they were beginning to be proponents of the research and of the process because they saw that we were really trying to help and we were doing it the right way for them. Yeah. And so these management plans happen across the state with multiple water bodies. So do you think that this study kind of has been um, inspirational or shown sort of like this is what it can be when you work hand in hand with the stakeholders that, that use the water body? Well, this situation that we're describing was in Lake Estepoga in Florida, but the same scenario plays itself out every year in Virginia, in Texas, in other states. This is the model. When you are trying to get stakeholders on board with a science approach, involve them in the science. So to me, what we learned from this experience is way bigger than doing an analysis of sediment on Lake Estepoga. It's understanding how to involve people, get buy-in, and have them become lifelong learners and partners in the science. So you're left with this, I don't know. What happened to the tubers? Well, 
since you're a researcher, what are your guesses? What's your hypothesis? What do you all think happened? We have kicked around a lot of different ideas. We do not know what happened. But my best guess is that all of those tubers were down in the sediment. And they've got to have oxygen to germinate. So the shallow ones germinate in early on. The deeper ones, they just sit there. And they can sit there for a decade or more. And just there's no oxygen. They just sit there. But Lake Estepoga has a very soft bottom in a lot of places. My theory is that Hurricane Irma came in, stirred up all of that sediment all at one time, oxygenated all of those tubers at one time, and they all start trying to grow simultaneously. However, that lake looked like chocolate milk for a year and a half after that hurricane. It's so stirred up. It took that long for all of that flocculent to settle back out. I wonder if all of those tubers started trying to germinate, but there simply wasn't enough light penetration through all of that flocculent material and they just died. Is that likely? I have no idea. Is it reasonable? Maybe, but I don't have any other theories about why all of the tubers disappeared. Wow. And so what does Lake Estepoga look like now? So Lake Estepoga is a beautiful lake. There is a tremendous amount of spatter dock, which is a desirable native plant, floating leaf plant over thousands of acres. There's still very little hydrilla there. So there have been a few patches of hydrilla get started. It is really not expanding all that much. But if you follow the the fishing groups on Lake Estepoga, they're catching a lot of really, really big fish right now. So they are learning how to fish without the hydrilla. They've learned how to target that spatter dock, and the fishing has hardly ever been better. Wow. Cool. Well, so that was our story of the legacy herbicides on Lake Estepoga. Um, this study involved the researchers at the University of Florida, FWC cooperation, and of course, the stakeholders that live on that lake and uh, spend their time outdoors on that lake. So if you have any questions or comments about this study, or maybe if you've seen another study come out from the Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants that you want us to talk about, email us at caip at ifis.ufl.edu. That's cape at ifis.ufl.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. And look forward to the next episode as we continue to turn science into solutions. 